The following is a President's Chapel given by Dr. W. Robert Godfrey. For more information about this lecture or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you are our faithful shepherd leading us uh, in the paths that you would have us to walk and promising that that path leads to your everlasting home for us. And so we thank you that uh, Jesus is for us um, the embodiment of the Good Shepherd, uh, the one who saves us and leads us and cares for us and preserves us from the wolves and from every enemy and uh, promises us eternal life. Surely these things will be because you have promised them. So now bless us as we look into your word and encourage us by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are turning once again to Psalm 105, and uh, we'll take up the reading at verse 7 and read down through uh, verse 25. It's verses 23 through 25 that will, in particular, be our text for the morning. But we'll begin at verse 7, Psalm 105, verse 7. Let us hear God's own word. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, I, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. So far, the reading of God's word. Uh, this uh, remarkable psalm of praise uh, praises God for all of his works, but then focuses in particular on the promise of God, the promise of God to provide a place for his people. And uh, the psalm then really is, is bracketed with this promise of a place and then culminates with God providing the place, the land of Canaan, for his old covenant people. 
And the verses in between that promise and that place are the path that God leads his people, um, leads them sometimes in surprising ways, uh, leads them, as we have seen already in the days of the patriarchs, wandering in the land of Canaan, few in number but protected. And then we saw last time how he led them through his preparation of Joseph, uh, sent into Egypt as a slave but exalted to Pharaoh's right hand and therefore able uh, to provide for his people. And now in this little section, verses 23 through 25, uh, the psalm uh, summarizes um, the centuries of Egypt's stay, of uh, Israel's stay in Egypt. And uh, you might say, why would we even pause here? Three little verses telling a very familiar story in a very simple way. Um, it's a very brief summary. Let's just rush on. Well, the psalm tells this familiar story in a brief way, but a very, one might almost say, demanding way. It draws us in. It insists that we slow down, that we don't just say, yeah, yeah, we know that. Israel was in Egypt. Now let's go on with the story. Um, it's not what these verses say so much as how they say it that insists that we slow down, that we think, that we ponder. Why has God said what he has said here? What is the, the message that he has for his people? And uh, the first thing that this little section shows us is that Israel, though now in Egypt, is still sojourning. Israel is a place, but not the place. Uh, it is on the path, but it's not the goal of the path. Um, Egypt is not home for Israel. And uh, that point is made in, uh, in several ways. One of them is uh, to remind Israel that the Egyptians are sons of Ham. Now, all of you who are careful students of the book of Genesis immediately notice that uh, Israel is a son of Shem, and therefore they are distantly related, but God had prophesied very different histories for the sons of Ham as opposed to the sons of Shem. They are not at home when they are among the sons of Ham. Uh, and uh, God is making the point that uh, Israel may be in Egypt, Israel may even have been saved from starvation by being in Egypt, but it's not the place, it's not the home, it's not the anticipated uh, fulfillment of God's promise. And um, so they are still reminded that they are sojourning. And remember that this psalm is really written for Israel in the days of its exile. And uh, what uh, the psalmist is doing here is saying to Israel, although your present days of exile are difficult, are long, are days of suffering, your people have gone through more in the past. Your people have gone through more in the past. Some of you may know that my wife is Hungarian. And the Hungarians suffered a great defeat in 1526. You all remember this, I'm sure. Professor Clark spends a long time on this in Reformation history. In 1526, the Hungarians suffered a great defeat at the Battle of Mohac. 
when Suleiman the Magnificent overran the, uh, the Hungarians and the King of Hungary and most of the nobles and most of the bishops were slaughtered on the battlefield. And to this day in Hungary, there is a proverb recited in times of distress. It's a kind of Calvinist sounding proverb. And the proverb is, oh well, more was lost at Mohach. Uh, this is Calvinist comfort. You see, cheer up, things could be worse. Uh, more was lost at Mohach. Well, in a sense, these verses are, are a little bit of a reminder to Israel in exile that they've had bad times. They were sojourners, but God didn't forget them. Uh, God was with them. Even more than that, God was accomplishing his purpose through this suffering. That's the great point here. God was accomplishing his purpose through the suffering. One of the great themes of this psalm at all points is everything that happened in Israel's history was according to God's plan. God is at no point innovating because things have surprised him. All that's happening is happening because of God's plan. And so Israel's on the path. It's a long path. It's a difficult path, but it's a path it's a path that will lead to the place of, that's the trouble with alliterations in preaching. Um, it's the path that will lead to the place of blessing, to the land of promise. And so Israel is being encouraged here. Yes, they were still sojourners. They were still exiles. Now, do you, do you have a sense that we can identify with this? The church of Jesus Christ between his first and second coming is called an exile church. We're not home yet. We're not there yet. The promised place is not yet ours. We're still sojourners. But in that sojourning, we're called, as this psalm teaches us, to remember the wondrous works of the Lord. He accomplishes his purpose. He does what he sets out to do. And so these, these verses remind us that not only is Israel sojourning in Egypt, but amazingly, Israel is being strengthened in Egypt. Verse 24, and God made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. When they'd been in Canaan, they'd been few in number. But now they're growing. Now they're growing dramatically. When they'd been in Canaan, God had to sovereignly protect them from their foes because they were so small in number. Now we're being told that they're growing in number and now they're stronger than their foes. Not, of course, that they don't need God's protection. But they're not a scrawny little people. They're not an insignificant little people anymore. They have grown in number and they have become strong in Egypt. And lo and behold, we discover that Egypt is a blessing to the people of God. God knew what he was doing taking them to Egypt. God knew what he was doing in having them there for a long time, that they would become strong. And uh, perhaps we think of that promise of Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sometimes the church is small and struggling and weak. Sometimes the church has grown in numbers and appears to be strong. That's what's happening in Egypt. God is making of his people a great people. And he's reminding them that at every point in their history, uh, whether they're in Canaan or in Egypt, 
Um, first comes their suffering, and then comes their glory. This is the pattern that this psalm sees in redemptive history over and over again. And once again, we see how God has been uh, preparing the way that his people would gradually come to understand that that's the way of God's working in this fallen world. First the suffering, then the glory. And he has to work at that a long time because it's a plan, it's a purpose that God is carrying out that we don't naturally like. We want the glory and then the glory. We want success and then success. We don't want the cross and then the resurrection. We're like Peter, always with a better plan than God's plan. But at every point, God is reminding us the way he operates is first the suffering and then the glory. And these little verses you see are, are full of a reiterated message that we as the people of God in all circumstances need to learn. So Israel first is represented as sojourning, then as being strengthened, and then as serving. That last verse, he turned their hearts, uh, that is God turned their hearts, the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. While in Egypt, uh, Israel is serving God. Um, they may be in exile. They may descend to slavery. They may be strong. They may be weak. Wherever they are, they are serving God. That's their calling. That's what God has appointed them to do. That's what God has appointed them to be, his servants. And of course, we know they not only served God in Egypt, but they served the Egyptians. Uh, first, like Joseph out of wisdom, and then later as slaves uh, working on Pharaoh's constructions. And we see that their time there as servants is summarized in those little verses. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Uh, how those words must have resonated in the hearts of Israel they dealt craftily with his servants. Uh, first of all, of course, because Joseph had dealt wisely with the Egyptians. He had provided for them. He'd saved them. And now in return, the Egyptians, having forgotten Joseph, are enslaving, deceiving, harming God's people. The word craftily here uh, is, a, is a strong and serious word, and it's exactly the word that was used when Joseph's brothers saw him approaching. And they determined that they would deal craftily with Joseph and kill him. So history is repeating itself again. Uh, here again, the people of God are subjected to suffering, to hatred. But is it too much to say, perhaps, that even this hatred is a gift of God? The hatred of Egypt means that Israel does not assimilate in Egypt. It doesn't find peace in Egypt. It doesn't deceive itself into thinking that Egypt is the place where they're meant to be. And it reminds us that between the people of God and the world, there is always an opposition. Uh, this is one of the remarkable things you find in the Psalter. 
that in almost every psalm, I think there are two exceptions, in almost every psalm, there's an explicit contrast drawn between the wicked and the righteous, between those who serve God and those who oppose him. Now, God doesn't want us to hate the world in the sense that we have nothing to do with the world, that we try to withdraw from the world. But he does want us to remember that the world hates us, that the world is opposed to our God and to his purposes, that the world will not be a friend in our journey towards heaven. And uh, we don't want that to make us a hate-filled people. But we do want it to remind us that we need to, dis to be a distinctive people, a separate people, a people consecrated to the service of the Lord. And so I hope we see in just these little verses uh, the, the great message of the Scripture, that God's ways are almost always surprising and uh, not the way we would have chosen from our worldly wisdom, that God's ways are often painful and difficult for his people, but that God's ways always fulfill his purpose and lead to success and glory for his people. And so here in these few verses, we have an anticipation of what will be true of the, the life of our Lord Jesus, whose life surprised his disciples, whose life ended in pain and death but who was raised to glory and has said to us, the servant is not greater than the master. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are, we are thankful that we have opportunities to pause and to reflect on it and to see how, how carefully you have crafted it, how profound are its truths and how encouraging it is uh, to know that in all things you are at work uh, to save your people, to preserve your people, and to lead us in the path that you would have us to walk. And so, O oh Lord, enable us always in all circumstances to look up and to have confidence in your promise that one day Jesus is coming again to make all things new and that then we will dwell forever in that glory of a new heaven and a new earth. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.